El Fanboy, Episode 4. Time to be alive. What a time to be alive, folks. I've been given a lot of thought lately. I mean, I'm 33, and I've got to think that anyone who was born in the early to mid-80s, uh, I, I think we all need to acknowledge and understand and accept that we are part of the final generation of people who ever had to outgrow a particular fandom. I mean, think about that. There were, Up until our generation... There was always this sort of invisible line that you know, they, that eventually everyone came to, and then they crossed and they came out on the other side of it. There was the stuff you loved as a child that eventually you stopped following and you outgrew it, and then you sort of graduated to that next level of entertainment. And that was just sort of the way of the world forever. And then somewhere along the way, in these last 20 to 30 years, it's become such that now you never actually have to graduate. You could be a 33-year-old schmuck from Queens and still be obsessive about Superman and still geek out about the Power Rangers and still you know, go see the Ninja Turtles movie, not just because your five-year-old loves it, but because you want to see the new Ninja Turtles movie. And there's no judgment. There's none of that, oh, really? You still watch that? You're a weirdo. It used to be that you know, you'd be a nerd. You'd be a weirdo. You'd be sort of like... You know, you'd be an undercover geek and you'd kind of have to keep that to yourself unless you wanted people to make fun of you, unless you wanted to be, you know, sort of in that sort of category of like the Trekkies and the people who used to be sort of like those little quiet groups of devout followers. Nowadays, it's mainstream, it's acceptable, and it's it's almost, you almost feel outsiders, you know, like everyone else is an outsider now. You know, like, like Comic-Con has become so mainstream that my wife's friend, Kimmy, who doesn't give a fuck about comic books, has probably never read one. She never goes to see any superhero movies. She's just, she literally could not be further, you know, further away from fanboy culture. And the other, uh, a few months ago, she's like, you know, we should all go to Comic-Con. And I'm just like, well, I know why I should go to Comic-Con. Why do you want to go? And she's telling my wife and I like, oh yeah, you know, a bunch of us just get together. The costumes are so fun. Let's go to Comic Con. It's you know, it just looks like a fun place to go visit. And it's like, that's that's it. It's it's now become mainstream and acceptable to just be a geek and be a fanboy and to love the same shit in your thirties that you loved as a kid. Meanwhile, like the reason I say my generation is the last one is because. You know, that happened during my generation. I remember being 12 or 13 years old, and that invisible line still existed. I remember sort of having to keep on the download myself that I was still watching Power Rangers. <laughs> I couldn't tell my other eighth grade buddies in middle school that I was geeking out about the Gold Ranger popping up and it being Jason, the former Red Ranger, who left abruptly during the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers series. I kind of had to keep that to myself, you know? And nowadays, there's none of that. You never have to worry about that because there's no judgment and there's none of that sort of 
Really? That's a kid's thing. Now there really is no such thing as a kid's thing. There is still definitely a grown-ups thing. Like you'd imagine there are kids who can't, you know, there are five-year-olds who aren't watching, you know, Breaking Bad or watching Game of Thrones because, you know, that is definitely too mature for them. But the other way around, you plenty of adults watch stuff that is, you know, in theory used to be aimed at kids. And while that's exciting, and while that is one of the first things I think of when I think of the phrase, what a time to be alive, there also is a sort of weird negative to that. You know, everything always kind of balances out, and there is a double-edged sword to this. So when you think about the negative of it all, is some of these properties now are sort are sort of overextending themselves, overexposing themselves, and they're being forced to evolve in directions that maybe the creators of these properties never intended to go down. You know, they're going down paths that the creators never necessarily intended to go down because when they created these things, they were thinking about something for a child or a, a teenager or a preteen. That's, you know, that is the level of sophistication. That was the demographic. That's what they were going for. But now the people who created these properties that are meant to light up the imaginations of children are now being asked to also entertain a 35-year-old, entertain a 45-year-old, engage a, a med student, and I wonder if that's really fair. I wonder if, you know, if this, if, if this is going to lead to some sort of strange, I don't want to say crisis, that sounds a little too dramatic, but I just wonder what this means for pop culture, that certain things are no longer just for kids and that things that once were for kids are being forced to sort of mature and grow past what their intended target audience was. You know, um, something that comes to mind right now, the, uh, the Nintendo Switch just came out, right? And Nintendo, when it first came out, you know, they made very accessible video games that, like, I remember I started playing when I was four. I could pick up that little controller with the two buttons, and I could play Super Mario Brothers for hours, and I would do fine. I would play, and I would beat levels, and I would get frustrated, and I'd start over again, and I would, you know, but I could play it. It engaged me. Nowadays, I'm not sure that today's games, a kid can just pick up and play. Like even like okay, like Zelda, The Legend of Zelda just released you know the their latest installment, the Breath of the Wild, and I've got it, and I'm playing it, and I'm loving it quite a bit. It's very different. Um, it's a it's got a very interesting feel to it. It's like nothing that I've personally ever played, and I'm enjoying the fuck out of it. And I realized though. That if I were to go back to my to when I was four or five and I had my little gold cartridge of The Legend of Zelda, had Breath of the Wild been the first Zelda game I played, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it. I probably wouldn't have played it. I would have spent like 10 minutes on it and thought, well, this is kind of dull and boring. And I would have just, I would have moved on. And that's something that Breath of the Wild is uh, is definitely guilty of. While it's pick up and play, and while Nintendo, you know, they, they've always prided themselves on their accessibility and, and the, their pick up and play nature, Breath of the Wild, like, if you're a little kid, it th there's nothing there for you. It's like, it's not fun. It's a little too sophisticated. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of, like, 
wide open areas where you don't have any idea where to go. And it's kind of, you know, it just, it, like, that got me thinking about that last night as I was playing the game. And I stayed up way too fucking late, by the way. It was one of those nights where, uh, oh, yeah, honey, I'm going to come to bed at like 11. And then all of a sudden it's one in the morning and I'm like, oh, great. Awesome. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um, so playing Breath of the Wild got me thinking about that. And it got me just thinking about, you know, what happens with these properties when we kind of push them too far and it becomes now it's a grown up thing. I also think about it when it comes to Superman, when it comes to Superman, like if unless you're unless you're someone who reads the comics or watches the cartoons, what are these new Superman movies doing for fans? And, you know, like I, for me growing up, what sorry, what got me into Superman were the movies. I was never really a big comic book guy, as I've been on record as saying before. Uh, in the early 80s, mid 80s, there, there really weren't any great Superman cartoons out that drew me in. What I got into were the movies. And I, I feel like for a lot of people, movies are the gateway. Movies are very accessible. And that tends to be how a lot of people find these characters. And then from there, they go and they read comics and they seek out the cartoons and they try to immerse themselves in that world. But if I'm if I'm like a four or five-year-old kid and I see Man of Steel or I see Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, is that starting now a lifelong fandom of Superman for me? I don't know. I, I, I would tend to say that the answer is no. I would tend to say that the new Superman movies don't do it. And this is not, uh, I'm not trying to get into a Superman rant here. I'm just using that as an example. Because um, the issue I have is a little more wide ranging, you know, in terms of overextending and, and overexposing these properties too. like, you know, as we grow up, I think we're supposed to sort of graduate to a next level. And like, even if you look at like gaming habits, when we were kids, we played for fun. We played just because, you know, it was these colorful things and you jump around and you jump and you, you, you squash a Goomba on their head and you throw a, a, a turtle shell or in Zelda, you would shoot that sword at these big bug looking things. And it was fun. It was escapist. It was just, you know, it was just something that, that kids did just to sort of enjoy themselves for a little while. As we grow older, we play games to like literally escape life. That's why the games have gotten so much bigger. That's why, you can, you know, people get lost in like Grand Theft Auto and Fallout and Skyrim. They create a whole second life. You know, there even was that, that game, Second Life, I believe it was called, that came out several years ago. That like nowadays, we, you know, we, we play games in order to, to just sort of numb ourselves because life is too painful and life is too lonely. And we're all dealing with shit. So games are, are now, it's an escape from the real world. And I'm not going to say whether or not that's good or bad. I'm no one to make that sort of determination. But what about just games for kids? What about these properties just staying for kids and then us kind of having our own thing? I don't know. I just, I feel like it's weird to take a property like Zelda. I'm just sticking, I'm just using that as an example. And I'm just like, I'm using Superman as an example, taking these properties and turning them into grown up entertainment. I think that that's a weird way to go with it. And I wonder what that's going to do long term. 
Um, you know, a couple companies are pretty good about keeping their properties aimed at their intended audiences practically always. Uh, and by a couple, I really mean one. But, you know, uh, like Disney Marvel. You know, Disney owns Marvel. And they've always been pretty good about that. You know, they never tried to make a mature Mickey Mouse movie, you know, uh, or Goofy or, or Donald Duck or any of that sort of stuff. You know, they know that those are kids, you know, those are like beloved kids icons. We're not going to mess with those. Yes, grown up, you know, people are going to outgrow them, but that's fine. That's natural. That's normal. We'll give them something to enjoy. That's separate of that. And I sort of respect that, you know? And same thing with, like, the Marvel Studios movies. The Marvel Studios movies, part of what makes them successful is that you could be a four-year-old boy or you could be an 80-year-old grandpa. Or you could be anywhere in between. You could be a soccer mom. You could be, uh, you could be anything. And you can see the Avengers and enjoy the hell out of it. And I think that's, you know, that's commendable. That's commendable that, you know, they, they create entertainment that's acceptable to the masses and kind of doesn't forget that these superheroes, Captain America, Incredible Hulk, Thor, all these things originally popped up as a way for little kids to amuse themselves and to live vicariously through these heroic beings and their super cool powers. Um, so good, you know, good on Marvel for sort of not trying to mature these characters or these properties past where they should be. Um, but of course, even that's a double-edged sword because then you got someone like me who the Marvel movies don't really do much for me. You know, I see them, I enjoy them for like two hours and then I just sort of, by the time the credits roll, I've kind of forgotten about them, save for like two of them. Um, and it, it's sort of like, you know, to a grown-up like me, a lot of the Marvel movies are sort of just like what I call disposable entertainment. There's not a lot of meat on the bones. There's not in terms of excitement or uh, spontaneity. You pretty much know what you're getting from start to finish. And that's why for someone like me, I'm kind of like, eh, the Marvel stuff. You know, I, I'm excited. I want to see Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm going to check out Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, listen, I'll be there. They'll get my money. But I don't necessarily have some huge overriding passion about it. And that just, again, just sort of brings me back to this idea of, you know, taking these properties that we grew up on and what do we do with them? Is it okay that, that the Marvel movies aren't really for me? Everyone and their mother now wants to be a geek or a fanboy or that, that it's just been adopted by the mainstream. You know, I just... I, 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 I'm curious about this stuff because while it's exciting to be alive in this time when there's so many great fanboy things being created and, and these geek properties we grew up on getting very interesting adaptations that are crossing over everywhere, I just wonder, you know, what's going to happen long term when these things we grew up with are suddenly unrecognizable to kids because they're being adapted too far away from what they were originally intended to be. Um, and I just, you know, I guess I just sort of wonder what, you know, I mean, that's why we don't really get a lot of great original movies anymore. That's why everything's a remake. That's why everything's a sequel. That's why everything's a reboot. Where are all the truly great original movies? Now those are just being done as little indies and they are what the Oscars celebrate, but there's very few in the way of big mainstream 
major studio craftfully created original content because we're, we're, we're taking our pop culture, you know, we're, we're taking our pop culture cues from the same shit we used to like when we were eight. So I've just, uh, all that sort of stuff fascinates me. And I'm curious to see if the pendulum ever swings back the other way. And it's okay for superheroes and this sort of stuff to just go back to being just aimed at youth and us grown-ups can watch shit that's not necessarily the 89th sequel, reboot, relaunch of something we've been watching for 30, 40 years. Um, so that's just kind of uh, where I'm at right now with what a time to be alive. I'd love to know what you guys think of that. But now on a wholly positive note on what a time to be alive, what a year 2017 has been so far, huh? I mean, if you look at some of the entries into genre films, we have been treated to some real treats. You know, you got John Wick 2, which even though I didn't really, you know, I didn't dislike it. I just thought it was a little kind of, a little dumber, a little fluffier than the first one, but it was still definitely entertaining and fun. So you got John Wick 2 out there. You got Logan, which just came out, and I'm so glad you guys have gotten a chance to see it. You know, being one of the few people to have seen it in the last three weeks, I've been sort of lonely, waiting for everyone else to catch up and see it. Um, For today's podcast, I am not going to delve into the spoilers just yet. The movie is a little too fresh. But uh, next week, I'm going to have a full-on spoiler discussion. So I hope you guys all watch it between now and next Tuesday. But um, so you got Logan and then you got Kong Skull Island coming out this Friday, um, which I've already seen and I already wrote a review about. I posted the video review. Kong Skull Island, man, is top-tier entertainment. It's a lot of fun, and you guys are going to really, really enjoy it. I know you are. Um, you know, we, th- this 2017 is, like, shaping up like crazy, you know? And then coming down the line, you got uh, you got Guardians of the Galaxy. You got Spider-Man Homecoming. You got Wonder Woman. You got Justice League. We're going to end the year with Star Wars, The, the Last Jedi, I mean, this is going to be a crazy year for us fanboys, for, for all of us geeks out there who've taken over the mainstream. 2017 is going to be an insane year. I have a feeling. I really do. Um, and by the way, I, I, I meant to include this in my Kong Skull Island review, but I'll just tell you guys here. For anyone wondering about Kong's size, uh, in relation to Godzilla, since we know that Godzilla is, you know, they're, they're going to make King Kong versus Godzilla in a couple of years. And there is a tease for that in this movie. Um, for anyone curious about that, it actually is specifically addressed. Uh, not necessarily in relation to Godzilla, but in relation to the fact that he's still growing. It is addressed in the dialogue of the movie that basically King Kong is somewhat young and he's still growing. And remember, this takes place in the early 70s, and Godzilla takes place present day. So you got to imagine in the last 40 years, King is, you know, Kong has grown up to be fairly fucking big. So uh, anyone wondering how they're going to handle that, uh, it's pretty much been addressed. Uh, almost self-consciously, I would say. I feel like they threw that in there because they knew that, like, yeah, it's a little weird that this ape is, like, half the size of Godzilla. But uh, that is addressed. By the way, speaking of video reviews, 
Um, tomorrow I'm getting my hands on a bunch of, of screeners for the, uh, all of those sort of Academy Award movies that I never got a chance to see because I was too busy focusing on fucking fanboy entertainment, uh, for the last three years. So I'm going to get to see Moonlight and Fences. Uh, I already saw Arrival, but I'm going to rewatch it. Um, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a bunch of them tomorrow. And I plan on making a YouTube review for each of them. Um, so just kind of keep an eye out for that. I am sort of expanding my YouTube offerings, the L Fanboy channel. Uh, I already added a, a bonus video yesterday, just kind of an off-the-cuff Man of Steel rant. Yes, Man of Steel. Here we are four years later, and I'm still talking about the ending of that fucking movie. Um, so I do recommend you go check that out. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to, I've decided I'm not going to put that on the podcast because I, I want, I want the channel to have some exclusive content. So, uh, I'm sorry for anyone who's hope, who's waiting on the podcast version of that. Uh, so, you know, s- certain things are going to be strictly YouTube, just like that video essay that I put together about the DCEU directors. That's going to be staying strictly, uh, on the YouTube, but, um, all right, so enough out of me and my personal ramblings. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of the show. Last week, I asked you guys my question of the week. I asked you basically what should Fox or the X-Men Cinematic Universe do about Wolverine moving forward? You know, now that Logan has come out and Hugh Jackman has retired his version of the character, what do you guys think they should do? Uh, should they recast? Should they let Logan lie low for a little while? Should they just try to make X-23 the new stand-in for Wolverine and, and upcoming X-Men movies somehow? Um, so here's what you guys said. On the Twitter, using hashtag LFanboy, as you all should, uh, Aaron Verola said Fox needs to let Wolverine breathe a bit to focus on the other X-Men. Maybe recast him for X-Force, but that may be too soon. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you there. I do think they should sort of let him breathe. Um, Dan Barley down from Australia. Yeah, hug a koala there. Uh, Dan Barley said, Gotta agree with Averola. Let Wolverine have a break and maybe give some other characters some limelight for a bit. There's my terrible Australian accent again. Then we got Tavo Borrego ahí de Vega Alta, Puerto Rico, tú sabes. He said, even though I love Jackman, but I'm totally, I'm such a stereotype. But remember, I can do this. I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban, so I can do a terrible Spanish accent, Latino accent, and you guys can just deal with it. It's not racist. Um, Tavo Borrego says, even though I love Jackman as Wolverine, I would not mind seeing another take on the character by another actor. (laughs) I don't know why he was Tony Montana, but that's... uh, that's, that's just, you deal with it. Um, Chris Lisanti said, considering First Class is my second favorite X-Men movie, I think they could and should go without Wolverine for a bit. Maybe recast later if needed. So yeah, there seems to be somewhat of a consensus. Let's let Wolverine lie low for a bit. Um, and I, I got to agree. I do. I have to agree. Let's, let's let him lie low. I think, you know, we, we need to sort of digest everything that we saw in Logan and what a powerful story arc that was. It would be a sort of a disservice 
to what Hugh Jackman and James Mangold just did. And what really what, you know, Hugh Jackman through all of his other directors, through Brian Singer especially, has been spending 17 years unfolding for us. If we just dive right into another Wolverine arc, it's kind of like, it just cheapens the whole thing. And while we're on the subject of Wolverine, you know, Aaron Varola also tweeted along. He has some theories about where he thinks they're going to go with X-23. He thinks X-23 is going to, you know, is going to get a little older and reintroduced in Deadpool 2 with Cable via time travel and meets up with either X-Men or X-Force. And the funny thing is, I, I was thinking along the same lines when I was heading to the screening a few weeks back. Uh, and I heard that there might be a post-credit sequence, which you know, at the time that was before it was made clear that there wouldn't be. Um, I thought, you know, I wonder if they're going to try to include some sort of time travel thing to get X-23 maybe back to the 80s. It, I, I thought it would have been interesting if, they, if in the post-credit sequence somehow there's a time travel thing and we have the child, you know, uh, Laura, X-23, witness from her perspective something that happened in X-Men Apocalypse so that we know, okay, so now she's officially in this timeline and she was a spectator for Apocalypse and by the time the next sequel comes out, which we know it takes place in the 90s, 10 years later, now she's in her 20s, this is when she'll be introduced as a proper member of the X-Men. That was just my own little fanboy, you know, uh, speculation, theory, idea that I sort of wanted to float out there at the time. So yeah, I, I, I'm thinking along the lines of, of Mr. Varola there. I think they have to try to get X-23 into the main timeline. You know, Logan takes place in 2029, so she wouldn't conceivably be old enough to be an X-Man, X-Woman, X-Thing for another few years. And that means that like in the late 2030s, but meanwhile, that's 40 years after what we're going to be seeing in the next X-Men movie. So they're going to, if they want her to be involved, and if she is sort of meant to be the surrogate for Wolverine moving forward, they're going to have to figure out a way to get her older and back in time somehow. So I'm with you there, Mr. Mbirola. But now let's look at the weekend's box office, which starts us off, you know, it keeps us on the Logan frame of mind. So Logan, holy crap, had a crazy weekend. I broke all 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 kinds of uh, R-rated um, records. Um, you know, late late Sunday, they were saying that it was going to be at eighty-seven point six million dollars, um, but it actually ended up at eighty-eight point four. So it's one of those movies that sort of just kept on exceeding expectations. You know, Fox tried to rein in the expectations when people were saying like seventy-five. I think they tried to say it was going to be in the high 60s. And then as the weekend wore on, it just kept climbing and climbing. It passed 70, it passed 75, it passed 80, and it ended all the way up at 88.4, which now makes it the fourth best R-rated domestic opening ever. Uh, You know, it's behind Deadpool, it's behind The Matrix Reloaded, and it's behind American Sniper. So, and it's right behind American Sniper, by the way. American Sniper was 89.3, so only one million bucks separates Logan from American Sniper. And that's pretty damn big when you consider that, you know, the Wolverine brand has been tarnished pretty hardcore in the past. 
Um, you know, between X-Men Origins Wolverine, um, between the fact that, like, his big payoff in the original trilogy was The Last Stand, and that was sort of an unsatisfying, you know, uh, sort of end of his initial arc there. Um, you know, it's a pretty big deal that he came out with an R-rated movie and it did this well. It goes to show you what the reviews and the word of mouth have been. I mean, the word of mouth have been fantastic because, has been fantastic because the cinema score was an A minus, which is pretty damn good, if you ask me. So, it, you know, th there's a chance, there's really a chance that Logan, depending on the drop off, could actually repeat next week against Kong Skull Island. Because I read a report somewhere that the, you know, right now Kong is tracking to make like 40 or 45 mil. And with Logan making almost 90, you know, if Logan suffers a very small drop, it might make like another 45 or 50 mil next week. Uh, and people are thinking that might happen because it doesn't seem like it was very front loaded since it was a somewhat, you know, while 88.4 is great for an R rated movie, that is somewhat quiet for a superhero movie. You know, there, there's a huge audience out there for these kinds of movies that didn't necessarily show up yet that are kind of waiting, I guess, to see what the reviews were like before they show up. So if all those people come out next week and give this thing the kind of legs it can have, that means that Logan could actually top Kong next week. So I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to that. That's going to be very interesting to see. I don't think anyone would have expected that. But now it seems like a distinct possibility. And speaking of box office juggernauts, remember last week I mentioned that if I'm the Power Rangers people, I am nervous about Beauty and the Beast because Beauty and the Beast opens the week before. Uh, right now, Fandango is saying that Beauty and the Beast is tracking as the fastest-selling family film ever, 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 ever. Um, you know, last month they were saying that it could open to 120 million bucks. Now it looks like it might do more than that. Someone from Fandango, the uh, the managing editor, said, uh, "Beauty is a beast in pre-sales, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. It's looking bigger than most Disney live-action adaptations, like The Jungle Book, Cinderella, or Malefic Maleficent. Its pre-sales rival those of a superhero movie. So, Beauty and the Beast is going to be an absolute monster. It's going to be a beast." When it comes out on March, uh, I believe, 24th. Um, uh, yeah, is that March? Yeah, let's just go with that. Fuck it. I'm not, who needs to look at dates? Uh, when it comes out, oh, it's March 17th. Sorry, it says it right there. I'm a loser. So when it comes out on March 17th, it's going to be a juggernaut. So next week, March 24th, when Power Rangers comes out, it may just get buried in that tidal wave. Um, so, you know. That's just something to keep an eye out for. Um, and while we're on the subject of Beauty and the Beast, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's been some controversy that I'd like to just lightly tread upon here. Uh, recently, a theater in Alabama canceled its screenings that it had planned for the movie because there is a quote-unquote gay moment in the movie. Um, apparently, the film contains the first ever uh, openly gay character in a Disney movie. 
And that is the character of Lafoe, who's direct, uh, directed, who's uh, portrayed by Mr. Josh Gad. Uh, he's the basically the henchman, the sidekick to Gaston, who's played by Luke Evans. And they apparently have like a moment that you know sort of you know plays the uh, the gay card sort of uh, very clearly. And there's apparently some controversy about that. There are some conservative groups now that are very pissed off. Um, and, you know, jo- uh, Josh Gad came out and he sort of made a statement on this. And I'm going to read to you what he said, and I'll just kind of give you my two cents on it. He says, there is so much fear out there of that which we don't understand, that which we don't know. He says that one of the central themes of the film, Beauty and the Beast, is never to judge a book by its cover. He says you have a character in Gaston who uses his charm offensive to whip other people into a frenzy, to go and attack somebody they've never met, somebody that's different, somebody that only represents a danger because Gaston says that he represents a danger. Uh, I think it's pretty clear the sort of allegory that he's trying to draw there. Uh, he says that Gaston's hate and ability to stir hate-based uh, prejudice is more resonant than it's ever been. Um, nevertheless, he also did add, I do think the moment is going to be effective, and I do think it's important. Um, and the film's director also said it is a nice, exclusively gay moment, gay moment in a Disney movie. Uh, it's part of a celebration of love, but I don't know what people, I don't want people to think it's more than it is and be disappointed. So I don't really, you know, it's interesting to me that they would, that they would try to put that in there. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I'm curious to see it with my own eyes before I really judge. But really, you know, if, if you're going to ban a movie, if you're going to cancel screenings because of a quote unquote gay moment then fuck you, all right? You, you, you're in Alabama. You are in a country where free speech and freedom of expression are, are you know, top priority. And now you're going to cancel a movie, especially one that's going to make this much money for you because of a fleeting moment where there's a character that's gay doing something sort of gay. Get a fucking life. And if you have a problem with that, and if you have a hard stance against this sort of thing, then do me a favor unfollow me, unsubscribe, and move the fuck on from my page and from my podcast. Because anyone who feels that way and is that ignorant about the situation, you can go to hell. Um, Also, you know, just something, an interesting little subtext in all this too, is that Luke Evans, you know, I don't know if, you know, he, he plays it sort of nonchalantly. No one really knows this, but, you know, Luke Evans, who plays Gaston, you know, he's gay in real life. And I think that's pretty cool that it's sort of under the radar. I think, you know, I think that that's actually sort of commendable in an age where people do try to use that as a way to get attention on themselves. Just kind of live your life. And that's how Evans lives his life. You know, he, he still plays straight characters. He'll have female love interests. He'll be Gaston, who's totally in love with, uh, with Belle, or he wants Belle. So he's clearly, you know, he, he has no problem being that guy, but on his own, in his own personal life, he's a gay man. So good for him. Uh, part of me is curious too, though. If, I wonder if, if part of this gay moment 
is are they going to try to do the whole thing where the whole reason that Gaston is so angry and such a sort of evil sort of bad guy is because he's, you know, in the closet and he's secretive about his sexuality and it's leading him to sort of lash out against others. Uh, I wonder if they're going to play that sort of thing. I don't know if it is or not. I just am curious about that because that is one of the recurring sort of tropes and things that you hear from like LGBT advocates and stuff like that. And oftentimes it's the most, the most conservative, the most angry, the most anti-gay, the most closed-minded people that you meet are the ones who secretly are. So I'm curious if, if that's part of the gay moment in it. I have no idea. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't read up on this quote-unquote the gay moment. But I'm just curious if that's going to be how they play it off. Um, that said, uh, just on a more general note, you know, Kelvin did get a chance to see it, so I asked him what he thought, and his word, his his, his beautifully one-word response, as Kelvin is known for, was just, meh. So take that as you will. Kelvin did not seem particularly impressed with Beauty and the Beast. Um, but now I actually kind of get to swing back towards something that I mentioned earlier. You know, I, I touched on Nintendo. And, you know, the, uh, a report just came out that it actually just had like a monster, monster opening, which surprises the hell out of me because that system confuses me. The Nintendo Switch confuses me because I was initially into it. The launch trailer looked pretty damn exciting. But the more I look at it and the more I read on it, I realize it's not really a traditional home console. It really seems to be a portable console that got you know, that that you can that happens to be able to be connected to your television, and to me that's a little weird, um, and it makes me question really its capabilities, and it really makes me question what sort of third party support it's going to get. Which anyone who follows Nintendo or video games know that that's been an issue for many many years. That's why the company has struggled so mightily, I would say, in the last fifteen years or so. That third party support for Nintendo consoles is pretty shitty because they're never on the same level as the front runners. So you know the Nintendo Switch sort of confuses the hell out of me because while I'm you know, I, while I think some of what it does is cool, a I'm never going to use any of those functions. Uh, I'm never going to be like detaching the controllers and having duels in my living room. I mean, I'm not a frat boy. I don't have people over at my house all the time just to play random video games together. When I play ga my games nowadays, it's freaking at 1030. My wife goes to bed, the kids are asleep, and I'm going to play for an hour and a half before I go to sleep. I'm never going to do a lot of the multiplayer stuff that Switch supposedly can do so well. Um, I'm not going to take you right now. Um... Sorry about that. But also, you know, I just, I, I wasn't sure really what the interest level was for this sort of thing. And to hear now that from Friday to Saturday, those first two days, sales for Nintendo Switch exceeded the first two day sales in America's history when it comes to Nintendo. Um, it's, you know, it's literally, it's the biggest one in the company's history here in, in North America. So the fact that it's sold faster than the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the N64, the GameCube, the Wii, which was a huge sensation when it came out. I lined up outside of Nintendo World for the Wii. Never doing that shit again. But I, line, I remember that, that was like there, there was a frenzy for the Wii. So to hear that this has topped that 
Like, Jesus. So, I mean, good for Nintendo. You know, I'll always be at heart a Nintendo supporter, even if I don't really play the games anymore. Um, it's funny how this sort of all sort of uh, ties back in, but like I sort of outgrew the Nintendo stuff. Um, and on top of that, just the library is never expansive enough to sort of sustain itself. You know, I'll get, I'll, I've owned every home console Nintendo has ever put out, but I, with every iteration, I own fewer and fewer games for it because there's not really much that comes out for it. It's a ton of shovelware. And then you get, you know, a good Mario and a good Zelda and then, you know, a good Smash Brothers. And then that's kind of it. So, you know, I, uh, I'll always root for them because they were my first love when it came to gaming. So I'm happy for them. But I'm just surprised as hell that the Switch is doing this well. I wonder if it's sustainable. Uh, I'm going to be having my friend Rob Marrera, who I mentioned last week. He, uh, he's a voiceover actor and a huge gamer. Um, I'm going to have him on pretty soon. We're going to be discussing all this kind of stuff on a, on a very game-centric edition of El Fanboy coming up uh, in, the, in the next few weeks. I'll let you know about that. In the meantime, I am playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and like I mentioned earlier, it is fucking phenomenal. I'm not playing it on the Switch, I'm playing it on the Wii U, and from what I hear, there really aren't any major differences between the two. So if you still have a Wii U somewhere, like I did, it was thrown in my garage somewhere, if you still have it, hook it up, download Breath of the Wild, you will enjoy the hell out of it. Um... But all right, so kind of moving from one controversy to another, since we were just on the Beauty and the Beast bit, uh, there's also this stuff that I've, I've been just keeping an eye on with Casey Affleck. Um, you know, he just won the Academy Award for Manchester by the Sea. And, you know, I've, I have found it continuously notable that Hollywood has embraced him so fervently while Nate Parker... Uh, whose Birth of a Nation was, you know, it had a, all this early initial buzz uh, earlier in 2016, suddenly got totally demolished because he was once acquitted of rape charges. Uh, you know, he had an accuser, and then, he, and then all the charges were dropped because there was insufficient evidence, and he was basically found to be not guilty of those. But just merely having the accusation has basically derailed his career because that came up, you know, the, that came out into the light, into the mainstream public right around the time his movie was doing so well, Birth of a Nation. So now you got Casey Affleck, who wasn't acquitted. He wasn't found guilty, but he wasn't acquitted. It, he settled out of court. And now he wins a, an Academy Award and everyone just kind of loves him. And I just sort of find that thing interesting. You know, uh, the latest sort of development in that is you got the, the film's director, Kenneth Lonergan, uh, d defending Affleck some more. You know, the, his alma mater, his college, uh, Wesleyan, uh, you know, the, the newspaper just published an op-ed that said, you know, the school paper that's titled How Wesleyan is Complicit in Affleck's Sexual Misconduct by Endorsing Lonergan. And then Lonergan has fired back now with his own piece, How Connor Aburl, who I guess that's the author of the piece, and the Argus, which is the newspaper, are complicit in slandering Casey Affleck. Uh, Lonergan says that 
the the piece that Aberle wrote is is such a tangle of illogic misinformation and flat out slander that only the author's presumed youth can possibly excuse his deeply offensive display of ignorance and warped PC fueled sense of indignation. Um, and then he just kind of comes out swinging in terms of. You know, how does Mr. Aberle dare to write as if he knows who was telling the truth and who was not? Anyone can sue anyone for anything in this country. The unsubstantiated details go into the public record and stay there. Um, and, he, you know, he says that, you know, uh, nothing was proved or disproved when it comes to Casey Affleck. So everyone needs to calm the fuck down. Uh, in case you're wondering exactly what the charges were, if you haven't been following this, Affleck was sued under a breach of contract violation and intentional infliction of emotional distress, among other complaints, by two women who were working on his unsuccessful mockumentary, I'm Still Here. By the way, I, I the unsuccessful bit, that's just what Variety says about it. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Was it really unsuccessful? Was it ever meant to be some sort of big thing? I think it did what it was supposed to do. I heard about it. It seemed to have a cult following and it seemed to be like this weird bit of like avant-garde art house documentary filmmaking where you have Joaquin Phoenix walking around pretending, basically living apart in public saying that he uh, had retired from acting and was going to be a rapper now. It was a whole bizarre, interesting little thing. So I, I find it interesting that Variety would deem it unsuccessful. I don't know. I feel like for what it was, it probably was very successful. But anyway, they say that the allegations include lewd text messages after one of the women refused to sleep with Affleck, Affleck climbing into bed with one of the women while she was sleeping, and creating a hostile work environment by bringing up sex, specifically sex with the women, oftentimes on set. So those are the charges be that were hurled at him, which were settled out of court. Uh, which means, you know, obviously, you know, Casey, you know, he he you know, he agreed to a settlement. He gave them some money and the problem went away. Now, what I find interesting about this isn't necessarily that I think Casey Affleck is a sexual predator. I really, you know, I don't really have a horse in that race. And I actually tend to agree with Lonergan's stance that, you know, in this very uh, litigious society that we live in, you know, anyone can sue anyone for anything. And nowadays, it seems like merely being accused of something is as bad as like it almost like the accusation stands out more than whether or not there's any proof of it, whether or not you're found to be acquitted later on. It doesn't matter. Now you have that stain on you that you have been accused of this horrible thing. And I just wonder how it is that Affleck was able to, you know, he had these things hurled at him. He dealt with it the way he did, and he's fine now. And Nate Parker had, you know, he also had, uh, you know, he had rape, uh, sexual assault sort of stuff thrown at him, and he was acquitted, but now he's in the doghouse. That's the only part of this that I find particularly interesting. None of my coverage on this has to do with, I think, Casey Affleck is a rapist. Uh, it sounds to me, uh, I don't want to get into that stuff, but, you know, um, it just, I, I just find that sort of thing endlessly fascinating. What do you guys out there think? Do you think that Casey Affleck uh, is getting treated with kid gloves for some reason? And why is it that certain celebrities can, you know, sustain these kinds of attacks and be fine and other ones cannot? 
um, that sort of thing. I just, I, I just always wonder, you know, why, what is it about the liberal left, which I'm technically a part of, by the way, but what is it about the liberal left that lets them decide which celebrity is now shameful and awful and which celebrity is like, eh, you know, you're okay. We'll, we'll just deal with it. You know, you look at people like Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and stuff like that, you know, they get treated like it's totally fine. But other celebrities, as soon as something bad like this happens, bye-bye forever. Um, yeah, we'll see, you know. Uh, but that is the latest in the ongoing sort of Casey Affleck thing. Moving right along to something a little more entertaining. You know, I've been saying for a while that Denis Villeneuve is probably the most exciting filmmaker that everyone has to watch out for right now. You know, he came out swinging with Prisoners. Then he followed that up with Sicario. Then he made Arrival, which to me, you know, I was getting into it with some people on the Twitter last week. Um, but for me, Arrival is a masterpiece with so many big ideas crammed into such a palatable, interesting story that, um, you know, I just think Arrival is phenomenal. And now he's moving on to Dune and he's making, he, he made a statement though, that Dune is not coming out necessarily anytime soon. That just because he signed on on it, signed on for it, doesn't mean we're going to see it like next year. Um, you know, he, here's what he said <clears throat> recently, uh, according to comicbook.com, or is this, I want to credit the right person. Let's see. Who did he say this to? I, I'm very close to not caring. I'm very close to not caring. Let's see. He looked. Eh, okay, so we're going to go with Cinema Blend on this one. Why not? He said, The problem right now, and something I want to change, I worked very fast. I did Prisoners, and then after that, in the past six years, I have done five movies, which is not a good idea. It's too fast, and I learned a lot. I learned so much. For the time now, I need just a little time to digest. After Blade Runner 2049, as I'm working on Dune, I would love to just digest and then come back with more energy for Dune with fresh ideas. I need that right now. And so I need uh, distance a little bit. So, you know, for everyone uh, who's waiting anxiously for Dune, um, you know, it looks like you're going to have a little bit of a wait ahead of you. Uh, he did comment, though, about the importance of Dune to him. So for you fans might appreciate this. He says, Dune is a novel that I read when I was a teenager, and I was engulfed. I was transported by Dune for years. When I finished Prisoners, when I came to Hollywood, I made a movie called Prisoners, and I said to myself, it will be a one-shot experience, but I will enjoy it. And it went well. And the producers at Alcon Entertainment asked me after that, what would you like to do? Is there one thing you'd like to do? And I said, Dune spontaneously. I know there was competition to get the rights, but I always said to myself, and I'm saying it to you, I can't believe it will be a thing. There's no screenplay right now, but that will be my dream. So listen, man, if I'm a Dune fan right now, I'm very excited because Denis Villeneuve is a, he's a legit, serious motherfucking filmmaker and an out and out artist a director who, as he's risen through the ranks now, you know, I haven't felt this way about a new director since uh, since Christopher Nolan. Um, I think he's the real deal. And to have him this passionate and this wild about Dune and have him actually working on it, 
I mean, Jesus, this sounds like a total slam dunk and a dream come true if you're a Dune fan. Uh, and I keep saying if you're a Dune fan because I have a shameful admission. I don't really know anything about Dune. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just, somebody out there tell me why I should care. Okay. I'm not saying that I shouldn't care. I'm not taking a stance against Dune. I just don't really know anything about it. To me, it's just, it's a thing that people like, but it's one of those things that's just been under my radar basically for my entire life. So somebody out there engage me on Twitter or on the MFR El Fanboy Facebook page. Let me know why I should care about Dune. I want to hear from you guys. I'm sure I can go Wikipedia it and get caught up that way. But I want to hear from a fan of the franchise. You know, sell it to me. Tell me what it is about Dune that encourages such a, a passionate following. Because I did something sort of, you know, now I, I sort of regret. You know, I sort of buried the lead when he announced in December that he was going, you know, that he was circling Dune and then eventually it became official that he signed on to do it. Uh, the article that I wrote about it was more so from the perspective of, well, now you could take him off the list of prospective Batman directors. Because at the time, he was on the short list that Warner Brothers was apparently looking at to take over for the Batman when, uh, when Ben Affleck stepped down. So for me, that was the angle I took on it. I said, you know, we can scratch Denis Villeneuve off the list of Batman directors. And in the article itself, I said, you know, here's why. We are, you know, he's he signed on to make Dune, so he can't make Batman. And a bunch of people commented at me that, like, dude, the, the, the bigger story here is that he's making Dune. Who cares about him not doing Batman? So now I feel sort of bad. I want to know what it is about Dune that has you guys so riled up. In my mind... I guess for obvious reasons, because of my love for DC, in my mind, the Batman angle was much bigger, but apparently Dune is a huge, huge deal. So let me know why. <clears throat> um, sticking sort of within the sci-fi realm here, we got Ridley Scott, who has revealed that he's already got a script for Alien Covenant written, um, you know, he said, uh, and he recently also said, you know, you've got to assume to a certain extent success. And from that, you'd better be ready. You don't want a two-year gap. So I'll be ready to go again next year. I mean, that's pretty damn exciting because when he came back to the franchise for Prometheus, you kind of got the sense that he was just sort of, you know, he was just making a brief stopover back in the Alien franchise, but that he wasn't necessarily going to be sticking with it. You know, that's why Prometheus was sort of different. You know, the, the, the ties to the Alien franchise were somewhat loose, and they weren't overplayed in the marketing. It was treated somewhat light. So you kind of got the sense that Scott was literally just kind of like revisiting an old friend for a bit and then moving on. And then all of a sudden we heard that Prometheus 2 was becoming Alien Covenant, and now he's talking about being ready to go again next year. So it looks like Ridley Scott is like ready to just devote the next few years of his life to Alien Covenant or whatever, to the Alien franchise. And by the way, if you guys saw that trailer that came out last week, uh, you should be very fucking excited. You know, shortly after I, I released episode three, there, you know, where I covered the, uh, the, the prologue that was released, uh, they released Alien Covenant trailer number two. And man, that looked really good. That looked really, really good. Like that single-handedly 
made me feel like now I need to go rewatch the other movies in the franchise because I am once again excited about all things Alien. Um, so if you haven't seen trailer number two, it pl- it looks like a straight up like sci-fi horror movie like the original Alien was uh, and, and probably even a little more intense than that one was. So, you know, it looks, it looks damn good, man. If I was excited about the prologue, trailer number two rocked my world, man. Um, but also, I do kind of want to note that in this coverage of, of Alien Covenant and its sequels, you, I, I can't help but notice that the Neil Blomkamp movie has disappeared. If you guys will recall, as Alien Covenant was being developed... Neil Blomkamp was working on his own Alien sequel, uh, and Riley Scott was going to produce it, and Sigourney Weaver was going to appear in it, and there was this talk that it was going to essentially be like a retcon, that it was going to be the true uh, Alien 3, since a lot of people felt that after Aliens, which was the sequel, that things got shitty from Alien 3 on. So Neil Blomkamp was going to give us a true Alien 3. Um... But, you know, as time has wore on, especially after Chappie bombed, all of a sudden, you know, that, that, that became less and less of a sure thing. And as recently as like a couple months ago, really, you know, Sigourney Weaver was out there talking about how like, you know, it's still in some stage of development. There's a script. There's a this. There's a that. We're going to see what happens. And then it started getting more and more looking like a long shot. And now to have this sort of coverage of Riley Scott talking about sequels and no mention whatsoever of the fact that there was already an Alien sequel uh, in the works, mean uh, to me that indicates that we can officially forget about the Neil Blomkamp, you know, uh, who directed District 9. And, you know, he, when he came out, he was sort of like a big deal and he made Elysium and all that. And... Now, all of a sudden, his alien movie seems to be gone. So just sort of keep that in mind, my friends. Um, there was also, you know, there was another little, a lot of controversy on today's show. But, um, you know, there's another, here's our third controversial subject that happened in the last week or so that I want to catch you guys up on. There's this whole thing with Iron Fist. Where, uh, you know, a lot of people feel that Finn Jones should not have been cast as Iron Fist, that they should have found uh, an Asian actor to play uh, Danny Rand. Um, and I guess I'll save my opinion for after I cover this. He, um, he went on Twitter this week and he shared something about how representation is important. And here's why. He shared something that Riz Ahmed uh, wrote, you know, Riz Ahmed of uh, Rogue One, Riz Ahmed of Nightcrawler, and uh, the Night of. Um, and so he shared this thing, and he got like backlash for it from a bunch of people who basically kind of treated him like, you know, oh, please, who are you to talk about representation? You took a role that should have been for an Asian actor. Uh, and it kind of went into this whole long back and forth. And to his credit, he never got nasty, he never got petty. He never, you know, swung below the belt. He never took it to any nasty place, uh, Jones. Um, But he ended up actually, like, deleting his Twitter for a little bit. He, like, disappeared uh, so that he could, quote-unquote, you know, focus more 
on on filming the defenders because the, this little Twitter joust he was having was suddenly becoming very all encompassing and and taking on a life of its own. So he released a full statement. Uh, I will read that real quick. He says, uh, there is a huge benefit to engage and help shape conversations on social media, especially when it comes to giving a voice to social matters. My original intention was to amplify a speech made by Riz Ahmed at the House of Commons. It was a very articulate and important speech on representation that I wholly agreed with. After posting, I was inundated by people accusing me of not being allowed to share his voice based on an assumption that our show is going to play into the problems of racial inequality on screen. I engaged politely, diplomatically, and attempted to bridge the divide. I'm currently in the middle of filming and I need to stay focused on bringing to life this character without judgment. So I decided to remove myself from Twitter for the time being. I am very proud of the work everyone has done on this series, and I'm excited for people to see how we've adapted the story. We have gone to great lengths to represent a diverse cast with an intelligent, socially progressive storyline. I, I hope people can watch the show before making judgments. In times as divisive as these, we need to stay unified, compassionate, and understanding in our differences. And you know what? I think he's handled this remarkably well. Uh, I don't know that I would have been half as patient as he's been throughout all this. Uh, the fact that you've got people out there bugging out about this. Listen, I I'm trying to be sensitive because I have ended up in the lion's den before with like social justice warrior types who come at me about this specific topic. Because for me, I, I, I have a whole sort of look on diversity in, in casting and in television and films that isn't very popular amongst, you know, my fellow leftists. And it's funny how that happens, how like I, I'm, I'm on, you know, we're all on the same side here, but they hate me because I don't necessarily want to stand in a soapbox and feel like diverse casting is the most important issue of our time. Um, so I'm trying to be sensitive here. But for me, it boils down to the fact that Danny Rand was never an Asian character to begin with. And part of, you know, from what I've been told, remember, I'm not a comic book guy, but from what I've been told by guys who are comic book guys, is that part of the lore, part of the, the, the Danny Rand story is that he's an outsider into this world of Asian mysticism and that he goes there you know, he goes to where he goes and he gets his powers and he learns what he learns. And the fact that he's an outsider is, is an integral part of the story. And for me, like that sort of like that, that ends this discussion. He was never Asian. So how can you call this whitewashing? And if you, and if you're taking the stance that, well, they should have been forward thinking and, and, and changed it to an Asian anyway, yeah, to me, there's almost a, a part of that that makes me feel like, and, and maybe you're going to be mad at me for saying this, but it almost makes me feel like you're being ungrateful for the phenomenal work that Marvel is doing with diversity. And with the fact that, like, look around at the Defenders. Look at his fellow teammates. You've got a female superhero, which those are hard to come by. So you have a strong female superhero. You have an African-American hero in Luke Cage who doesn't play into stereotypes and is just a great heroic figure. 
and uh, and his whole his whole series sort of tackled certain stereotypes and cliches in a very positive way. Um, you've got a handicapped man in uh, you know Matt Murdock's Daredevil. Like so, those are his teammates. You have a strong female superhero. You have a strong African American superhero, and you have a handy capable man who's blind but still out there fighting the good fight. And now you're pissed that they didn't decide to change the race of Danny Rand, who's always been white to Asian, because suddenly now things aren't diverse and inclusive enough. Like, come on, guys, pick your battles here. This is not the this is not the company to attack for this kind of stuff. I mean, I would almost argue that there's very few companies that, that you should be attacking for this kind of stuff, but I digress. Marvel, and in particular, these TV shows on Netflix, you know, that whole subsect of the Marvel Universe, these are the last people you should be attacking for, for, for their quote-unquote lack of diversity and for quote-unquote whitewashing. And I, you know, I, like, I, I'm trying to be sensitive, but I really, I just don't get it. And if anyone out there listening, if you want to try to engage me in a grown-up way, I'll be happy to engage you. If you're going to come at me with some sort of pissy, snarky rant, uh, then spare me. I'll just, you know, I, I will not engage you. But anyone out there who thinks that I'm missing something in all this, you know, I'd be happy to hear what you got to say. I just... My gut says you're picking the wrong fight with the wrong enemy. Um, so good, good, good for Finn Jones handling this the way he has. Really good for him. Um, moving back along to some other exciting stuff, you know, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Men Tell No Tales released a new trailer, and I just want to quickly say that it looks damn good. You know, I've gone on record in the past as saying that. I don't really care for the Pirates franchise. Uh, they've never really done anything for me. The first movie, I've just sort of, I, I literally fell asleep while watching Curse of the Black Pearl in theaters. Um, but I got to tell you, that, that, that trailer looks really good. And what I applaud them for is they make it seem like you don't have to have seen the other movies to watch this. There's something about the way the trailer was edited and the story that the film seems to be telling where it's a very like inclusive tale where even if you are not steeped in the lore you can it, this could be your first pirates movie and i sort of appreciate that because now you know i haven't seen the last two but now i don't feel like i have to watch those to watch this cuz that might have dissuaded me from seeing this movie cuz i'm like ah oh, well yeah i am curious about this but i'm going to be lost cuz i don't know I, I don't know what happened in the last two this movie looks almost like it's like it, it, it functions as a relaunch for things, especially because it has the whole flashback where you see a young Jack Sparrow, and this story seems to be self-contained within the uh, the 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 feud of you know Jack Sparrow and Javier Bardem's character. So I, I appreciate that. I think it's a very smart move. Uh, if they do want to keep making these movies. You know, it's good to sort of have this one in there to sort of re-energize and say you don't necessarily have to, you know, have seen the other ones to come see this. Um, so, you know, that, I thought that was a very effective trailer. I thought, uh, you know what, that movie is actually on my radar now. Um, 
And there was another teaser we're going to get to in just a sec. I know that you know, the, the big one that broke out over this weekend, I want to I end on that one. So before we get to that, I also just want to touch on the story that came out uh, recently where um, they said that, you know, producer Charles Roven assured fans that, that Man of Steel was always meant to kick off the DC movie universe. Uh, first, I'll read his statement, and then I'll sort of share with you uh, some history on this subject. And sort of my response to his statement. Um, he says, when we started Man of Steel, we knew that we were going to expand the universe. From the moment that we started with Man of Steel, we knew that once we opened up the Superman, you can't do Superman without talking about aliens existing in our universe. We knew that we were going to have to really consider what the world building would be beyond the unique film. Then, as soon as Warner Brothers announced that slate, we really got intensive about it. Of course, he's referring to the slate that came out uh, a year later in 2014. Uh, but the thing is, each unique film in the DC pantheon is going to be unique because the directors are different, except for Zack directing Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and the two Justice League movies. Each one of those directors, whether it be David Ayer or Patty Jenkins or James Wan, they are bringing their sensibilities and a different production designer and different costume designer, etc. That world building will still be of the same DC Justice League universe, but have its own unique point of view. So, all right, a couple things, a couple things. Um, I, I find it notable, his phrasing here. When he says, you know, that basically he says that you know, we were always going to do some world building. But then as soon as Warner Brothers announced that slate... We really got intensive about it. It makes it seem like the, we're talking about two camps here. And that's something I've been covering very closely for the last two years, for anyone who's been following my DCEU explore, explorations. You know, you have Roven and his team of producers. By the way, he's gone now. He's no longer really associated with these movies. But at the time, you had Roven and his team of producers working on Man of Steel and where they might want to go with it. But then you have Warner Brothers and those executives basically sort of announcing things separate of the fact. Like, you hear how he, how he says that? He said, then, as soon as Warner Brothers announced that slate, we really got intensive about it. So it seems like, you know, like they were working on what their plans were. Then Warner Brothers went ahead and, you know, blew off at the mouth saying, hey, we're going to make, you know, you're excited about Man of Steel getting a sequel. Well, we're going to make, 10 more DC movies, and they're coming out in these years, and these are the movies. So all of a sudden, you have the producers going, well, shit, now we have to get more intense about this. Now we need to actually try to live up to what Warner Brothers wants of us. So, you know, I've been saying for a while that Warner Brothers made this huge, bold leap announcing all of these movies in 2014, and if you look, you know, that slate is, looks very different now. You know, there are movies that have fallen off. There are movies that have been delayed. There have been like five or six movies that have been added. And the timeline for each has, is, seems to be in a constant state of flux. And, you know, Roven may not have been going for this, but he just sort of unintentionally confirmed that, you know, Warner Brothers sort of had its agenda while the people creating these movies had their agenda. And Warner Brothers sort of announced that slate almost separate of what they were doing. And now they kind of had to reverse engineer. They had to try to reverse engineer the work to match the slate. And, you know, I mean, look, it's, it, it's, been, it's been a hit or miss task 
uh, reverse engineering for that slate, as the slate, like I said, keeps changing now. Um, and then just something else, too, I thought it was interesting. You know, he's, he's trying to accentuate how different each film is, but then even he had to acknowledge that it's still, you know, it's a very Zack Snyder-heavy slate for now. You know, he, he's talking about each unique film. The DC Pantheon is going to be unique because of the directors are different, except for Zach directing four of the movies in it. Um, and arguably the most important ones, you know, the Superman movie, the Batman V Superman movie, and both Justice League movies. Uh, you know, he's he's got a heavy, heavy say in all this. Um, and you guys know how I feel about that. But uh, just in terms of like, you know, the history here is it's interesting that now they're trying to talk about Man of Steel always being the start of the DCEU. Because if you guys recall, or maybe you don't know this, but Man of Steel, you know, there was a legal reason for that movie to happen. And they weren't sure what was going to happen. Basically, you know, Warner Brothers was caught in a, in a lawsuit against the heirs of the people of, of Siegel and Schuster who created uh, Superman. That they, you know, they accused DC Comics of, which in turn means Warner Brothers, because Warner Brothers owns them. They accused DC Comics of basically offering their grandfathers, uh, quote unquote, sweetheart deals, where they gave them basically pennies to own Superman outright, and you know, and those deals basically meant that now the families would never get to see any of that awesome Superman money that's come in the last, you know, 70, 80 years since he came out. Um, and there was basically a ruling made by the court that if they didn't have a Superman movie put into production by a certain year, that the heirs can sue them again. That the heirs can say, well, you know what, now you're, now you're holding out on us because, you know, the, the, the little bit of money we are supposed to make off Superman, you're taking so long to release a movie that you are hurting us. Um, because remember there hadn't been a movie since 2006 and these lawsuits were happening towards the end of the zeros. So it was like happening seven, eight, nine. And there was, you know, the clock was counting and there was no Superman movie in the works. So Warner brothers was somewhat under the gun. They had to get a Superman movie into some level of production or else they were going to have to pay some money to the heirs for, for not creating a Superman movie. So Man of Steel actually came out of that. It came out of a desire to, damn, we have to get something done. And then we'll, you know, then we'll sort of see from there where we go from it. So yes, they, they put some seeds in there. They, they planted some ideas that could lead to some world building. But the main reason that they made that movie, the initial thing was, we got to get this done or we're going to owe these people some money. Um... So I just find that interesting. I kind of wanted to just circle back and give you guys sort of a brief history of where Man of Steel came from and how, yes, it's, you know, it's got some world building elements to it. But at the time it came out, there really was not a lot of certainty about what was going to come next. Uh, you know, there was a very real possibility that they could even lose the character um, or certain elements of the character. So anyway. That's uh, that's your Man of Steel. That's your DCEU update for the week. And that brings us over to the final teaser that I want to touch on. Deadpool had a teaser before Logan, and holy shit, that was awesome. Uh, I don't even think I have to tell you guys one of the things that drove me nuts in an excited way. 
it had the John Williams Superman theme in it. Uh, I mean, any right there, they won me over. But top to bottom, start to finish, what a phenomenal teaser. Um, you know, it, it, it instills a lot of confidence in the sequel that, you know, th- this is going to definitely, you know, Deadpool ain't done yet. There's still plenty of fun to happen with this character. And I just love the whole aesthetic of it. The whole, you know, not on not on my watch, motherfucker. And he goes to change in the photo booth. Like, it's hilarious. He takes disastrously long to change while the Superman theme is playing. And he gets there and the old man has been shot dead. <laughs> the whole thing is just, it's, it's, it, it was pretty beautiful. Um, and yeah, Deadpool 2 is on the way, guys. Uh, yeah, they, they don't have a date yet, but it, they, they, it's a brilliant piece of marketing to sneak that in there before Logan. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. And, uh, speaking of things I'm excited about, I'm happy to announce that El Fanboy continues to grow. Uh, you can now find the podcast over on, uh, Stitcher, which is, you know, a huge podcast app. You can also find it on TuneIn and it was already up on SoundCloud and iTunes. And uh, from what I'm hearing, it's all other, it's on other places. I don't even know how this shit works. I used to think I had to sign up for all the different distributors. But my buddy who listens on Podcast Addict says he found it there. So, you know, it looks like it's, it's basically coming across so many platforms now that pretty much anyone who wants to check out the show can, regardless of where they get their podcast from. So please continue to spread the word, guys. Uh, we seem to be growing. I got more reviews. I'm still at a perfect five stars. Um, so thank you for everyone who's taken the time to to give me uh, some reviews there on iTunes. Um, you know, I'm just I'm still very excited about where I'm going with all this stuff. Now that I'm uh, now that I'm uh, unchained and a solo act. And building up the El Fanboy name, the El Fanboy brand, is pretty exciting for me. Um, I'm very excited about this whole new chapter in my life, really. But I'm also sort of scared, to be honest, because, you know, I, I, I had an interesting exchange yesterday that really crystallized this for me. That I'm a, you know, I, I, I try to make myself a jackass of all trades. And yet I realize I'm also a master of none. Um, you know, I was, I was speaking with, uh, a man named David Lagana yesterday. And if you're a wrestling fan, you should know him. He was a writer for the WWE for a very long time. And I used to be a huge wrestling junkie, by the way, back in the day. And I'm, I, I should probably do something related to WrestleMania as we get closer to it. But, uh, I don't really follow that much. Anyway, uh, David Lagana posted a thing on his Twitter asking just for like general creative people. He was like, who out there is creative? What do you have to offer? DM me or, you know, post something for me to check out of yours. Sell yourself to me. And I responded right away going, hey, I'm a creative person. I got plenty to offer or whatever. And I asked him, like, you know, what is it? You know, what is this for? And he didn't really have an answer. He just seemed to be, he kept coming back to, don't worry about what it's for. Just send me a link to your best thing. Send me your link to the thing that sells you and represents you and shows off what you bring to the table. And all of a sudden I realized, holy shit, you know, I don't have like that one thing I can hang my head on. 
And considering what my mission is this year, I mean, it's been my mission really on and off for the last, I don't know, 20 years. But considering I tried to make 2017 the year that I stop writing about people and start becoming someone that people write about, uh, I think it's a problem that I'm so scattershot with what I do. It's, uh, It's a tough spot to be in for me because I almost have ADD when it comes to my creativity. Because I literally sort of jump from one thing to the next. So when I was speaking with Mr. Lagana yesterday, I'm like, well, I could send you uh, an episode of a web series I did. I could send you like an editorial rant video that I have up. I could send you a writing sample of, of something I've written that you know went viral and people were into. I could send you a video I edited of someone else's music. I could send you me singing a song on my album that's on iTunes. I could send you clips of me performing on stage when you know, I've done a bunch of musicals and I have a little reel of that stuff. Like I, I realized I have such a wide array of things, but not one single thing that I'd be like, well, look at this. This will sell me to you in one full swoop. And that got me thinking about the fact that like I really got to focus. If I'm going to make this work, if I'm going to become what uh, what people seem to think I have the potential to become. I need to pick something and I need to put all my weight behind it and push. And right now I'm struggling to find what that thing would be. You know, um, I was named after my grandfather, Mario Peña. And Mario, you know, he passed away uh, several years ago now. He was He was a Renaissance man. And I grew up, you know, sort of in his shadow. He, you know, he was a writer. He was a director. He was an actor. He was a designer. He would, you know, be one minute he'd be writing a, a, a play that gets picked up and performed around the world. And the next he was like, you know, literally designing a set and then building costumes out of paper mache and masks and, and that sort of thing. He was creating visual art. He was a sculptor. He would find pieces of wood and sculpt fine art out of them. He would paint. And then he'd be on stage acting one moment and then off stage directing the next. And he, he sort of had that sort of scattershot thing. And he excelled at all of it. And I grew up sort of watching him. And obviously watching my aunt, Elizabeth Pena, who was doing her thing too with her acting career and being sort of inspired by them and having the Mario name, you know, being, having that sort of honor handed down to me that I'm named after him, uh, you know, it it inspired me to pursue everything, not just one thing. And on the one hand, that's very exciting to, to, to be like, yes, I have this very wide array of skills, but to be a jackass of all trades and a master of none, you know, where does that really get me? If I'm trying to make a career out of this, where does that really get me? So I've been just trying to do a little soul searching. I've been trying to uh, just figure out what should be that one thing, one thing. I'm thinking about Jack Palance in the City Slickers. One thing. Um, What should my one thing be? I'm not asking you guys. I'm just thinking out loud and you know, you guys are my friends. Anyone who's listening to this, if you've taken the time to listen to this long ass fucking podcast, if you've taken the time to tweet at me and follow me and subscribe to my YouTube page and all the stuff, I mean, all the support I'm getting. If you've gone and done any of this, you're my friend. 
And I'm just sort of rhetorically asking questions here, and you, my friends, can listen. Um, yeah, anyone out there, you guys, do I have any listeners who consider themselves creative types? What do you do to focus your energy on one thing? Uh, I don't know how to do that. You know, sometimes I sit down to start working on a screenplay, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm working on the screenplay, and I start thinking about, oh, you know, I should, I, I, there's this video editing thing I should do, this little editing project that I think would be fun to do. Or, oh, look, these people who run this theater company, you know, they just offered me a lead role in a show. So maybe I should just go, that, go do that for the next few months. And I just, I get so distracted. I bounce from thing to thing. So what do you guys do out there, my fellow creative types? What do you do to focus your energies? Because I'm having trouble figuring out what my one thing is going to be. Um, right now, just, you know, I, I always have a million different ideas. This weekend, I'm actually going to a bachelor party. My boy, uh, Jeremy Scully, for those of you who follow, uh, Scully's getting married in late April. So we're going away to some old mansion upstate uh, for like a murder mystery weekend. I've never done one of these things, but he's into that sort of stuff, and I'm going to give it a try. And a part of me, you know, I always film the bachelor parties, and I always edit these little videos about them. I turn them into like little movies, little documentary movies. And a part of me is thinking like, it might be kind of fun to make a little horror movie while we're up there. You know, me and Scully, you know, we, we, we collaborate pretty well together. I don't know if you guys have looked at our uh, Full Force Tri-State Men of Mystery web series that was on Funny or Die. Uh, I actually put one of them up on the uh, El Fanboy website if you want to see an example of our, of our web series. I mean, it's totally dumb nonsense, and we did it like guerrilla style on a camcorder shot in one night with an ever-evolving script and edited within three hours. But, you know, it was pretty fun. And I was thinking of doing like a guerrilla style horror movie this weekend. So I'm kind of coming up with a concept and I'll let you guys know if I end up shooting it. Uh, I'm actually pretty damn excited about the concept. Just got to see if I can get the other fellas who are heading up there with us on board because it's going to require, uh, you know, a few of us to do some actual acting and, and pulling to pull this thing off. So we'll see what happens. Uh, that, that, that's the thing with me. I always get all these ideas, and it's hard to make them stick. It's hard to, to see them through sometimes because I literally bounce from one thing to another. But uh, all right. I don't know why this became a therapy session. I just uh, I want to check in on you. I know I told you guys that one of the subtexts of this show was going to be my quest to uh, sort of making it in the world as an entertainer or creative type. So this was my long-winded update on where I'm at with that. I need to figure out what my one thing is. Um, and last thing I'll, I'll mention is I am working on the Patreon page. I hope I'm saying that right. Patreon, Patreon, I don't know. Uh, a couple of you have mentioned it to me because you very generously would like to contribute to the El Fanboy cause. Um, and I'm so flabbergasted by that. I'm still working on it, though, so I, it's a little more involved than I had initially thought. Once I get that going, you know, I'll let you all know, and thanks to everyone who's already mentioned that they would like to contribute to the cause. Um, and that's 
it. All right. So this concludes the fourth episode of the El Fanboy podcast, this new uh, solo journey that I am on after uh, some pretty unexpected shit happened last month. So thank you for all who've taken the time to listen. Feel free to like and subscribe and retweet and tell your friends because El Fanboy is here to stay. And uh, I just realized as I'm doing this that I didn't ask you guys a question of the week. Um, Considering I just got tweeted about this and I didn't address it on this episode, I'm just going to sort of throw this out there. Where is everybody at with the Han Solo movie? Are you excited? Are you anxious? Are you totally put off by it? So I just made this up. I wasn't planning on asking you this, but this will be the question of the week. All right. Where are you guys in terms of the Han Solo movie? How do you feel about it? What's your excitement level like? All right. Thank you. And I'll check in on you next week.